Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and for today's episode, I'll be joined by Alex Stewart. Oh, it's a good one. But before we get started, let me remind you, the football is back. Yes, that's right. I said it. The football is back. Not everywhere, obviously, but in some places. In the places that I have been watching, or will be watching, the football is back. And to celebrate this delightful and joyous occasion, TIFO is offering 40% off annual subscriptions to The Athletic. That's 40%, which works out to be £3 per month, 10p a day. That's 10p a day. Do you know what? I'd spend more money on a posh coffee in London uh, than I would on a month subscription to the greatest sports writing that is available uh, online and indeed the world, maybe even the universe. Who could say we don't have the information about what happens out of space? But if you want a slice of the pie, you should, and you do, you really, because it's a delicious, delicious, tasty pie. And on top of the pie, it says, this pie helps Joe. If you want a slice of that delicious helping Joe pie and enjoying yourself pie, you should visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO for that 40%, oh, sweet, sweet 40% offer. Anyway, you're going to hear me say hello again now, uh, because uh, I recorded the original intro quite a long time ago. Um, But... Omar Chowdhury, fantastic guy, and um, here I go again with another hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Alex. Uh, We were joined today, delighted to be so, by Omar Chowdhury, the head of football intelligence for 21st Club. What are 21st Club, Alex? They are a consultancy that works with clubs to develop medium and long-term strategy, um, particularly around... Uh, transfer uh, and manager acquisition, but also around um, how they fit within leagues, branding, marketing, that kind of stuff. Mm. Anyway, what did we talk about? We talked about transfers, the future of the pandemic-shaped transfer market. What's going to happen to clubs? Are there a buy? Is this a buying market? Is it a selling market? Uh, you know, he, uh, even Omar even gives us his estimate for what the clubs in the Premier League will spend uh, over the summer. Big drop off. Um, we also talk about, uh, on a 10-minute tangent, the p- potential of a European Super League, or also uh, cross-border leagues at a lower level, maybe the Atlantic League, including Scotland, for example. A Balkan League didn't come up, but it's an example of that. Um, and we rounded things off by talking about 21st Club's work with the Canadian Premier League, which is very interesting, isn't it, Alex? Yes. Um, so they've been uh, providing support to the league to um, find a pool of international players of relevant quality um, to make up for deficits within the uh, scouting and recruitment experience of the managers that are in that league because it's quite a nascent league. It's only been around for a year. So um, 21st Club have supported that endeavour as part of an effort to raise the quality of the league overall. Anyway, uh, without further ado, we shall leave you in the warm embrace of Omar Chowdhury. Hello. Uh, what did 21st Club actually do? So we're a, we're a sports intelligence agency working in football and golf. Uh, and on the football side of the business, which I suppose is most relevant for this conversation, we work with clubs, leagues, associations, uh, helping them with their mid to long term planning. So as you know, football is very much about uh, the short term and, and looking forward to the next game. Uh, but we like to kind of think a little bit more long-term, get a helicopter view of things and and help clubs using data primarily um, to help them with their strategy and and long-term thinking. 
Ah, you know, football might be more relevant, but I, I'm very interested in what you do in golf. Will you just let us know that quickly as well? Yeah, so it's a funny story in golf because we, we started off actually as um, the analytics provider for Team Europe in the Ryder Cup. Right. So first with Darren Clark in 2016 and then Thomas Bjorn in, in 2018, which was obviously a, kind of an unbelievable uh, experience and win. Um, and we've kind of expanded our services to work um, in media, with European Tour, with individual golfers. Uh, and so, yeah, that business has been going for a good five years now, whereas the football side has been going for about about seven. Right. OK. And in the football regard, then, uh, you work with clubs primarily? Yeah, it's a mix, to be honest. Um, clubs are a big part of what we do, but uh, leagues and associations um, as well are, are another big part of it. Um, and it's with the clubs, obviously, it, it tends to be thinking about you know, recruitment, head coach hire, succession planning, you know, squad management. Um, all those kind of, again, not, not necessarily focusing on the next game, but thinking about the next window in the next couple of years. Uh, and then with leagues, it can be all, a really range of issues, you know, in terms of their, their strategy. And obviously a lot of leagues are uh, grappling with, uh, smaller leagues are grappling to kind of stay relevant, I guess, in, um, in a modern world where all our focus is, is turned to the big leagues. Uh, and with bigger leagues, obviously trying to retain their position as, as the major leagues in, in world football. Right, yeah. Okay, so what might a relationship with a football club look like for, for 21st century there? I mean, you've given us the broad strokes, but um, without necessarily having to give us a specific example, could you give us a hypothetical about the details of what that relationship might be? Yeah, sure. It's um, So we, we like to work on a kind of partnership basis um, with teams. So um, we'll try and understand their specific problems, specific challenges. I think that's one of the great things about but football is that every club is different. Every club's got a different culture, different philosophy of uh, of buying players or building their squad. Uh, obviously, different um, different types of people as well. And so, we'll tend to work on a kind of a partnership basis, working you know, a few days, several days a week uh, with clubs and and trying to help solve their problems on a bespoke basis. So if they're if they're trying to profile a particular type of player or if they're trying to think about a particular type of problem that they have around, it could even be something like, you know, their position in wider Europe and their lobbying in the global game, then we'll kind of understand the problem, try and frame it for them in a way that that makes sense and then use data to try and try and solve that problem. Right. I think, uh, did I just call you 21st century? <laughs> you did. Yeah. That's, don't worry. You're not the first and you won't be the last. <laughs> that's going to seep in, isn't it? Um, <laughs> hey, listen, you wrote a piece recently uh, about the future of uh, the transfer window. That's one of the reasons that um, we wanted to speak to you today, because I think that's a, it's a fascinating story at the moment, particularly because very few people seem to have any idea um, what's going on and, and what's going to happen. And, not, you know, no one's to blame because it's a, an unprecedented situation, which is a word that we hear frequently uh, these days. But to the best of your understanding, Omar, um, what is going to happen with the transfer window? Yeah. So yeah, the million dollar question or the billion dollar question, however, yeah. however you want to frame it really. Um, look, I, th I think the, the most obvious thing is that obviously prices are, uh, are going to fall in terms of the, the transfer fees that we see. And I, there's two reasons for that. So the first one, uh, purely I think is optics. Uh, I think, you know, if you're a football club and you're <coughs> spending you know, 60, 70, 100 million on a player, you know, how does that really look in a world where governments are spending, you know, in, in some cases, you know, similar magnitudes of, uh, of, of funding on coronavirus measures. So from an optics point of view, I think clubs will be reluctant to be certainly publishing big um, transfer fees. 
and you just secondly, mean how they would be viewed by the public you mean yeah i think so yeah there's already i think in um in a lot of people's eyes you know some discomfort with the way that that fees are paid uh, and we can maybe get on to whether whether those fees are justified or not um but then secondly you know fundamentally revenues are going to be down um you know the clubs that we speak to they all know that um you know First and foremost, the most obvious one is that match day income is hit um, with no with no supporters in the ground. But then obviously there's discussions in different leagues about rebates and about um, hits on commercial bonuses and um, you know the impact of viewing figures and so on. And, and all those things will have an impact on on clubs' ability to uh, pay and, and obviously have the cash to, to pay for transfers. So I think yeah, it's, it's obvious that the, the transfer market will deflate over the over the coming certainly coming year and, and I imagine next few years. And presumably the lower down the leagues that you go, particularly in, in, in the UK, although I'm assuming this is true of everywhere, match day income or the loss of match day income has a, a has a greater effect on the financial health of the club overall, right? Yes, absolutely. And it's a really key point, actually. Uh, and UEFA have some really good figures on this. But if you take, um, take for example, the Dutch Eredivisie or the, the Scottish Premiership, close to 50% of revenues in those leagues are from match day income, which uh, is pretty substantial obviously we're not talking about entire season at this stage although who knows what will happen next season of of match day income wiped out Um, but certainly even for the remaining you know five six games that that clubs had at home that's a big hit and then so clearly for clubs in those leagues they're hurt more because you know they rely on that income whereas a premier league club um, particularly those that perhaps in the bottom half of the league that tend to rely more on their their broadcast income then it's I mean, it's still obviously a, a hit to, to lose matchday fans, but it's perhaps not as severe as it as it is in other places. With the decrease in matchday revenue, particularly affecting smaller clubs or, or smaller leagues, do you not think there's almost an argument that those clubs will actually look to inflate transfer fees as a means of deriving additional revenue to secure themselves? Uh, and so that, that that would either create a situation in which transfer fees don't otherwise deflate or actually there's a kind of stasis in the market because the bigger clubs don't want to pay inflated fees but the smaller clubs are holding out for them because they've lost so much of their additional revenue otherwise. Yeah it's, it's a really interesting problem for, for teams in those leagues and I think one of the things that they will have to do this summer is um, essentially try and drum up demand for their players. Uh, and we've seen this, um, you know, if you look at the spending, for example, in the big five leagues, um, I think about two thirds of it stays within the big five leagues. So they're kind of buying from each other, either within their own league or from, from other leagues within that big five. Uh, and those clubs, you know, look, some of them are going to be more hit than others, but largely they're going to be okay. So it's that extra, extra one third that leaves those big five leagues that there's going to be a lot of clubs trying to kind of, grab that money as it were that they'll be leaving those leagues so you know whether it's um, clubs in lower divisions in England or if it's the Croatian league or it's the Eredivisie or Scotland or wherever uh, and they're going to have to find ways to in many ways differentiate their players Um, and that might involve some kind of creative marketing of their players it might involve um, things like loan to buy options it might involve um, you know just trying to be perhaps a bit more proactive with with targeting the clubs that they um, that they want to go after. So if you know a player in your squad is a particular fit for a particular big five team, then you might kind of, in the same way a marketeer might you know, target a particular client, these selling clubs might want to do that as well. So I think that there will be a drive for, to go with those creative solutions. But at the same time, a lot of these clubs are going to be you know, quite desperate to sell their players and they're not necessarily in the best negotiating position. 
Presumably also this means that clubs will have a, a greater imperative to, to follow the lead of someone like Genk, for example, who very much take a buy young and cheap, sell higher and a little bit more developed model. So are, are we going to see effectively leagues even more overtly becoming feeders for the big five leagues because revenue is so important through, you know, through generating trans- transfer sales? Yes, I think so. So if you look, if you're taking a kind of three to five year perspective on things, you, I think the the broadcast revenues, firstly, they've signed relatively long deals, particularly outside the Premier League, but I'm sure even the Premier League broadcast deal will, you know, not fall off a cliff in the next uh, phase, I'm sure will plateau. So the money's going to stay within the big five leagues. So outside of those leagues, the clubs in those leagues, as you say, are going to have to um, depend on transfer revenue as, as a means to to generate revenue for the club. And if you look historically, transfer revenue is a portion of total revenue has grown, has been the single biggest growth um, revenue stream for, for these clubs. So uh, in terms of the actual strategy though, it's quite interesting. So, you know, you talk about a Genk signing, signing young, signing cheap and, and selling high. The trouble is if everyone starts to do that, then market forces of supply and demand dictate that suddenly the prices of, of young players are going to go up more. And that's actually something we have seen over the last um, five or six years is that the growth rate, the inflation rate, if you like, of transfer fees of young players has been much higher than those of peak age players. Um, and so this is one of the challenges, I suppose, that, that clubs will face is that if everyone starts trying to do the same model, then suddenly that model doesn't become as effective. Um, so perhaps there are other forms of, of finding undervalued players. And that might be different on age it might be certain characteristics might be certain positions um, and that's what these different teams and leagues are going to have to try and work out um, in this future world given how the broadcasting money seems to be centered in you know these five leagues and particularly i suppose one or two of them given that clubs external to that are going to be changing their business models at least in some part to reflect the realities of that this is all sounding very much like a kind of de facto movement towards a European Super League. Um, is is that a more realistic prospect now, given what's happened with the pandemic, do you think? Well, I, I hope not. Um, I, I think um, one of the things that we've written about before um, is this inequality that, that exists, you know, between the big five and the rest. And, and you have to understand that that inequality exists because of pure economics. Um, the big five leagues are the big five leagues, largely because they're the five biggest economies in Europe. And ultimately, the size of your league is dictated by the number of people who want to watch it and the wealth uh, of those people and essentially the intensity by how much they want to watch those leagues. And, and so the fact that the UK is you know 60 odd million people, Germany 70 odd million people, that's why they have big, um, big broadcast revenues. So for me, the solution that exists below those leagues is cross-border leagues. So you look at the Eredivisie, they signed, a, I think it was a, a 10-year broadcast deal a little while ago, and it's not a huge broadcast deal. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, the, the Eredivisie is only ever really going to be interesting to the 17 or so million people in the Netherlands. And so for them, and for me, it makes, it makes much more sense to be joining up with a Belgium and a Luxembourg to create a bigger league that enables teams within those leagues to tap into essentially a wider economy of people uh, and therefore become a bit more competitive with, with some of the bigger teams in, um, uh, in the big five leagues. And you could say Scotland and Atlantic League has been discussed before. So to me, that creates a lot more of a kind of um, 
you know, if you're talking about do you do you improve the top or do you kind of raise the bottom? Um, for me, the raising the bottom is a much more attractive and sustainable solution uh, for European football because ultimately it, it allows the likes of big clubs in smaller leagues like an Ajax, like a Celtic, like a Sparta Prague or whoever to you know rise up and compete with clubs in the big five leagues, which they just don't have the opportunity to at the moment because they're just constrained by the sizes of their economies. Is that not the same model, though, as a European Super League? Uh, well, it's, it's a model that works for the smaller leagues in the first instance. And it might be that the Champions League, you know, at the very... If you can imagine a pyramid, right? So at the moment, um, you've got, I guess, a Champions League at the top. And then you've got all these other leagues. I uh, will say the big five leagues that sit beneath it. And then you've got kind of second divisions and then these smaller European leagues. What I'm talking about there is essentially elevating these smaller European leagues to the same level as a big five league. And these all sit on one um, one level of this pyramid. And then they all have the opportunity to play in a Champions League. And for me, it'd be much more attractive to see uh, a Champions League as it is today, i.e. not a closed shop Champions League. And then you have, say, domestic leagues and um, lower divisions feeding into the middle tier of that pyramid, which are the big five leagues and cross-border leagues. So is that the sort of accepted wisdom of the European Super League then, that, that it would be um, a league without promotion or relegation and a closed-door league, as, as you describe? I mean, I know that that's how people have talked about it, but presumably that's the only real way that it works, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think the that, that, that is the talk. Um, I, I think, ultimately, for me, the Champions League... Um, I think the issue is if you have a closed shop European Super League, the rest of football essentially becomes redundant, right? Because what what are you working towards? You know, you don't have the opportunity to be a small club and work your way up to the top. Um, so, you know, why why even play the rest of football? And that to me is is massively undermining the entire value, both kind of financially but culturally, um, that sits within within the sport. So the Champions League, you know, the fact that Leicester, you know, if you go back ten years, Leicester were in what League One, certainly in the Championship. Uh, and then they're you know, playing in the Champions League a couple of years ago, they're going to be playing in the Champions League next year. Those stories still have to be relevant and possible. You know, you've got other teams from, from smaller European nations also playing in Europa League and Champions League. So for me, that still has to be possible. And, and it's so important not to have that closed shop model. Do you not think, though, that if, um, and this is just playing devil's advocate, I do agree with you, Omar, but do you think, for example, let's say, uh, you know, the top of the big five or the big six or, or whoever it is from, from the Premier League disappear off to play in some clothes shop uh, capitalist dream um, and Leicester rose from Division One and, and won whatever is the remnants of the Premier League is, the league which has since been, uh, you know, PR dubbed as real football, uh, you know, followed by real uh, real football fans. Is that not still a nice story? Can you not have a kind of, you know, uh, a rebel alliance? Maybe. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is that I guess supporters vote with their feet, right? Um, and, you know, we, we talk about the, um, you know, the kind of lack of funds in, in League One and League Two at the moment and the clubs that are really struggling there. You know, fundamentally, that's because not a lot of people are watching um, those games because they're not they're not attending them and they're not watching them on television and if they were on television if they are on television they don't get huge viewing figures so you know even though there is you know, I think everyone within English football culture accepts and, and loves the fact that we have lower league football and, and EFL football the fact is not a huge amount of people watch it and that's what drives the the financial inequality that exists you know, just just within English football so either finding ways of making those leagues more attractive is is a first step 
Um, but but ultimately, I think you know that that uh, alternative reality that you suggest. I think it was struggled to it was struggled to attract enough fans, particularly on a global basis as well. Because you know, ultimately, if you look at the Premier League's growth in, in broadcast rights, and I'm sure what would be the case for a European Super League, if the growth markets would be you know Asia, America, Africa, people in those continents watching watching this league. Is it not the case though that it? I mean, I I agree with you and I agree with Joe, but is it realistic to see football as a cultural entity now rather than a purely economic one? Because these these sorts of decisions are going to be made by the clubs that are already in the position to be able to influence governing bodies, and therefore by default they are the wealthiest ones. And it kind of almost has ceased to matter that people still view football culturally or sociologically all that matters is money, right? That's a very grim outlook for the game. Yeah, no, it's it's a fair it's a fair comment, and that's certainly you know been the direction of travel. I think um, one of the things that I hope will change, you know, post COVID, is that um, you know football clubs, particularly outside outside the elite, that are going to have to, for want of a better phrase, you know, stay relevant um, in the game, is that they will have to you know find a, a bigger purpose. Uh, and be able to attract supporters um, on that basis. So, you know, if you're, I think Forest Green Rovers are a really good example of this. You know, look at FC Nordsjælland in in Denmark as well. These are clubs that are kind of tapping into a, a wider purpose. You know, they're not just about necessarily the football on the on the pitch. They're not just about um, winning the next game. They, um, you know, in, in Forest Green Rovers' example, you know, it was clear, clearly kind of a, a green vegan club, which has attracted interest and I'm sure attracted more supporters for them. Um, I think clubs tapping into those messages will be able to find their relevance again and, and tap into their local communities and actually stay relevant within, within the game. So, yeah, I, I think that the top clubs will probably steer because they've got the wealth and maybe, don't, if, if you like, don't need to care about that kind of thing as much anymore. Um, but I think there is an opportunity for clubs outside the, the very elite, you know, your top 10, 20 in the Deloitte Money League, if you like, um, to, you know, find a purpose. And who knows what that might lead to if you're, if you're able to you know, develop a, a proper brand. You know, if you look at the way that uh, millennials and Gen Z bright products now, they, they think more just than just about, you know, um, whether a product is, is good or if it's kind of um, value. They think more about the brand itself. Um, and I wonder if that's an opportunity for, for clubs outside the elite to tap into that. What do they, what do they think about the brand? Uh, millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. Well, I, well, I guess that's just the the research, right? The um, all the trends seem to point to the fact that younger people uh, have a much more um, I don't know think think a lot more about the kind of social responsibility that uh, oh, that brands have um, as opposed to necessarily just buying the you know the cheapest or the in an um, environmental context, for example. Yeah, environmental and kind of social um, context. You know, I think there's there's a growing consciousness about you know, big corporations and their um, their impact on the environment or the impact on um, working conditions and so on. And I think, it, look, that's still a world away perhaps from, from football and 11 or 22 players kicking a ball on the pitch. But, you know, I think more and more fans are going to be thinking about the women's game, going to be thinking about clubs' impact on the environment, all the travel that they do, you know, going to be thinking about what they actually stand for within the community. And, and as I say, I, I'm not sure the top clubs are necessarily going to be thinking about that day to day but there is an opportunity for clubs outside that that top elite 
Right, yeah. Quick uh, offshoot cue. Um, do you think, what's had more impact on the young people and their thinking, Omar? Was it uh, cult films from the 80s that depicted large conglomerates with evil robots? Or is it, you know, the harsh realities of, of modern Western life? <laughs> I, I really don't know. I'm not, I'm not a social scientist, but uh, I'm sure there's plenty of academic papers that I've had a look at that. <laughs> Just picking up on that as well, leaving the evil robots to one side. Don't um, leave them aside. <laughs> well, I'm scared of them. I don't want to talk about them. Um, do you do you actually think it's realistic, given that football or sport generally is 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 a phenomenon that's so rooted in locality that people actually will think, oh, I'm kind of interested in football as a, a concept or an idea. It's something I'd like to get into, so I'm going to find a club that represents my ethics. I mean that that seems, you know, football brands are not spread across geographical regions in the same sort of way outside of you know an Arsenal or a Manchester United or whatever it, it I I like I like the idea of clubs doing that but I I can't see that it would make much of a difference just because of the way people tend to support the club that they're nearest to yeah so I think there's a couple of things there so firstly I don't think you would necessarily choose your first club on that basis um, because of you know your point there around locality and, and all the other factors that might go into that, um, but but you might end up kind of um, you know taking an interest in other in other clubs in the same way like a, a St Pauli right. So if you if you're looking through your live scores app or whatever, and you're just looking through the second division of of Germany, a team like St Pauli is perhaps going to conjure a certain level of emotion or response in you that other teams in that league you just wouldn't have a clue about. Um, because you know everyone knows about the St. Pauli fan cult- culture and what they stand for and so on. Um, and so I can imagine that um, beginning to take a bit more of a hold as, as clubs think about that a bit more. So, you know, if, if Ajax, you know, the idea of having a second team, so if Ajax, you know, make a run to the Champions League semi-finals, everyone kind of gets behind them. Um, and then if they can capitalise that on some way by, um, you know, using that as an opportunity to talk about their brand, talk about what the work they do, talk about, um, you know, the culture that, uh, the cultural relevance that Ajax has within the Netherlands or within Europe, um, then people, you know, may, may tap into that. You know, I, if I think, so I've been watching The Last Dance, right? Um, and I've also been watching the, the Formula One um, documentary on Netflix. And th- those are two sports that I kind of follow very much in passing. But having watched those documentaries, I kind of have like this, this interest now in both of them. And I'd like to think that, again, the teams and the personalities that I follow within those, uh, within those respective sports now are the ones that you know, I connect to on some level or I have some kind of interest in beyond just their sporting capability, you know, just beyond their ability to, to win races or, or win games. Um, so I think that's, it's not going to be your first and foremost choice necessarily, but it might be something that... Um, you know, speaks to as your second team. You know, the idea that a certain club could be everyone's second team is, is something that a lot of clubs could aspire to. Uh, the power of narrative. Do you know what's interesting about that? It sounds like it's sort of grown out of uh, the idea of individualism. You know, the idea that you can uh, purchase or or, um, or or make known your uh, your fandom of things that therefore reflect your 
values and identities in the world. What an odd thing. Anyway, that was a lovely little tangent. I would like to go back to transfers just before we move on as well, because there are a couple of things um, that you mentioned earlier on, Omar, that I found particularly interesting. The first is how, I mean, and this kind of ties in, how do you creatively market a player? <laughs> yeah, so I think, um, you know, elite clubs um, still have relatively limited scouting resources, right? They're not watching every single player in the world. They're not following every single player in the world. They might have a scout report on him here or there because, you know, he's popped up on in a particular game. Uh, but, you know, they, they by and large focus on uh, specific markets uh, with, with the scouts and, and analysts that they have. Uh, and so if you're, if you're a club in Poland or in Denmark or wherever and you happen to have a player that you think is capable of playing in, in one of the big five leagues, then you need to find ways of, of getting in touch. And the trouble is, if you go through you know, agents, you know, every agent kind of has you know, a relatively similar process of you know, WhatsApping a sporting director and saying, have a look at my player, here's some video. Um, but there are other ways you could do it. So um, firstly, through data. Um, data is still, you know, whilst it's become more and more used in, uh, in recruitment, it's still not, I guess, harnessed in, in the way that is most compelling. It's still very much kind of counting of tackles, passes and shots. So really trying to convince clubs of, well, if you sign this player, th- this player is worth X point per season to you, it increases your chances of staying up by Y percent. That's a quite compelling argument that at least creates a bit of a differentiation to have a look at this guy. You know, he does three stepovers in this video and, and you know hits a crossbar or whatever. Um, and then there's you know there's other ways as well through um, through the video. You know, trying to uh, go beyond the kind of YouTube com- uh, compilation, but really kind of tactically break down a player, which um, uh, and and they're they're fit for that team. I think that's a really important point. Is that actually identifying the potential buying club and working out how exactly that player fits into that team. Again, it's much more compelling than just showing clips of a player. Sounds a little bit like you're talking about a a TIFO video, Omar, not to big ourselves up too much. Uh, It's exactly that. It's exactly that. It's an area of monetization for you. Absolutely, yeah. Doing this work for free. We're suckers, Alex. A couple of suckers. yeah go on omar sorry for the interruption <laughs> no no I, was, I you know i think i think basically you know it's an opportunity there's cl- clubs outside the major leagues need to find ways to um you know get their players in front of um in front of the uh, the big leagues because ultimately their players are cheaper uh, but they need to be able to sell them for more than what they would normally be available in the marketplace so i think one one example i've written about before is um, so a player, uh, I think it was Andras Spora, and I'm going to butcher some name pronunciations, I'm sure, <laughs> on this pod, but uh, he was playing for Slovan Bratislava up until January. And most English clubs would never look at Slovan Bratislava because why would you ever look at, uh, look at a player in Slovakia? Um, but our model suggests that Slovan Bratislava are probably as good as the likes of kind of Villa, Norwich at the bottom end of, uh, of the Premier League. Uh, and so that suggests that their best players are capable, are probably of similar kind of quality to um, players at the bottom end of the Premier League. Now, the Slovakian league is not good. Um, you know, it's, as a league and as a whole, it's not good. Um, but its top players are probably just about Premier League quality. Uh, and their top striker got sold, I think, for about nine million euros to Sporting Lisbon. Um, so Sporting obviously saw the opportunity to sign him and, and Sporting would be, again, comparable to a Premier League quality team. They're usually in Europe most seasons. Um, and so most Premier League clubs, you know, when they're signing a striker, you usually need to pay you know, 20, 30 million for him. But 
in this case, they could have arguably got a player for around 10 million. Could they um, though? Who, or would, would it have cost more if, you know, uh, Norwich had come in? Uh, it would. That, that's a fair point, actually, because normally when an English club knocks on the door, the, the selling club does hike up the price. Yeah. They, they obviously know those clubs are wealthier, but they, it would certainly be cheaper than signing a player from Germany or signing a player even from the Eredivisie, simply because, you know, these clubs don't have great negotiating positions. It's not often that, that clubs from top leagues come in for their players. You're not going to get... Premier League clubs getting into a bidding war for players from Slovan Bratislava, whereas that might be the case for even players from Belgium or, or the Netherlands. Right, yeah. And I suppose also you won't get uh, an extra year or two out of the player if they're keen to make the most of their playing years and they're not in a competitive league. Yes, exactly, yeah. So there's all kinds of benefits of looking outside the usual routes. Yeah. Um, two player names that, uh, that have popped up recently on um, in pieces published by The Athletic, uh, Paul Pogba and uh, David Luiz, uh, both players who are potentially affected or impacted by the current pandemic uh, and the transfer window in, in slightly differing ways. Um, what the first suggestion is that, that Paul Pogba, whilst he was uh, presumably looking for a move away from Old Trafford, is now potentially uh, too expensive for a club to take a gamble on, particularly given recent form. Um, the other being David Luiz, who I believe has a Arsenal have an option to extend his contract, um, but could choose not to, uh, given his expense and the current situation. I wondered if I could put those two examples to you, Omar, so that we can discuss the transfer window uh, using these examples in a way that, that you know people are following the story. What do you make of uh, of the Pogba one, for example? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think um, yeah. Uh, Clubs are going to, I imagine, play poor a little bit um, as buyers uh, and say, oh, we, you know, we can't afford uh, the transfer fees. And again, you know, going right to the top again, the optics point might not want to pay uh, those big transfer fees. And so, um, yeah, for, for a lot of clubs, there's a suggestion that they might try and hold on to their players for an extra year um, if they, if, instead of selling them and, and hope that values return to you know, some semblance of normal in, in 2021. Um, so that's something that that could happen in in the Paul Pogba scenario, uh, and I and I think um, you know chatting to a few people within the game, there's a sense that there might be a bit of a buyer's market um, it, from the perspective of clubs. So you know if players are out of contract or if players want to move, the clubs hold a little bit of power um, more so than they normally do because. You know, they a they can play poor, and b the players don't have a huge amount of options available to them. Which I think is, if that's a common denominator, you know, one of the common denominators between Pogba and David Luiz is that the number of buyers for the, for them probably isn't that big. Right. And what about um? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess David Luiz then is an example of a player who, who might be out of contract. Presumably, that's going to to be the case for for a larger number of players this season than it would ordinarily be. Um, yes, I mean, as you go down the the leagues, um, in any case, a lot of players, you know, only sign one or two year deals. So, you know, in League One, League Two, the vast majority of deals are, are out of contract players anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose that the, the players who had the kind of contract extension options, if they weren't getting, you know, regular first team football, then a lot of uh, a lot of clubs in the top leagues would would also choose to release those players. And and yeah, those players out in the marketplace again. Whilst the clubs wouldn't necessarily need to pay transfer fees for them, those players probably aren't going to get the salaries that they were that they were hoping because of their financial situation. Are we going to see an increase in swap deals where clubs are a sort of you know assessing exactly what they need, looking at where their squad's a bit flabby, but taking largely taking finances out of the equation and just trading players? Yeah, I think 
In principle, yes. I think having spoken to a couple of clubs, that that is something that is being considered. Um, I think in practice, it's quite challenging. Um, you know, you have to, you know, doing one, any club will tell you doing one transfer is hard enough. The amount of kind of energy and effort that goes into valuing the player and scouting them and working out their fit in the team and all that kind of stuff. Then having to do it with another player simultaneously and work out the kind of relative value and so on. Um, becomes quite challenging. How does so, that? How does a swap deal work? I've never really understood. It's not just as simple as you know sending them in their cars in opposite directions. <laughs> no, no, I, I think not. And it, obviously, it's different to American sports. To be honest, I'm, I'm. You're probably better off speaking to a sports lawyer or an agent on this. Um, as I understand it, there's no real kind of swap deal. I mean, there's an agreement of kind of the the value that's involved in the deal, but. It is ultimately two transfers um, that that are done. Um, so it's still very much. It's not as I say, not like American sports where, you know, you go there, he'll come to us, and and we're all done. It's I think it's a bit more complicated than that in um, in European football. Right. Yeah. And what about this as as a concept? I've heard some other people saying as well that um, because the the impact of the pandemic uh, in terms of the the economics of football clubs will have a bigger impact the lower down the leagues you go. The, the big leagues actually have an opportunity this summer to pick up talent f- cheaper than they might ordinarily be able to. Do you think that we might see, you know, uh, a number of players moving up the leagues in that regard as uh, the top six in the Premier League, for example, look to pick off uh, opportunities and deals that they might not ordinarily be able to afford? Yeah, I think so. Um, and this kind of goes back to the point of you know, big five clubs are normally recruiting within the big five, but then a lot of them are holding on to their players because they hope that values go up in the you know in 2021 2022 and so on um then you know naturally there's going to be a bit of a kind of um uh, things aren't necessarily going to move as quickly so it then becomes well let's look look down the leagues try and sign younger try and sign cheaper try and look at clubs who are perhaps in a bit more of a desperate position um to sell and we've seen um uh, for example clubs in croatia um, if you treat that as a, as a lower league, if you like, um, hugely dependent on, on transfer income as, as a revenue stream. So these clubs, as part of their business model anyway, they need to sell. Now they're probably going to need to sell even more. And it'll be the same, I think, for, for League One, League Two. Um, so I think that'll definitely be the case. I think there will probably see a, a decline in, um, in inter-Big Five activity and, and probably reaching out a bit further to try and sign... Um, players on, on better value lower down the leagues um, before we move off uh, transfers um, I just wondered if, if you'd like to uh, make an impossible guess Omar uh, because last summer I believe 1.4 billion pounds was spent by Premier League clubs on 99 permanent signings according to Sky Sports they're obsessed with those numbers uh, would you like to make a, a, a guess an estimate as to the total we might see this summer please feel free to say no uh, you know what I work for a business that um, kind of prides itself on making predictions um, and we try and hold ourselves to account to it. So I think, uh, let's say, in the region of, I think, 800 million, something like that. Big drop. Nearly 50% off. significant drop. Yeah, and I think, look, there's two points to it as well, because the full 1.4 billion spending is, I believe, a gross figure. Uh, yes, I'm sure it probably is. If it's on a Sky Sports website, I'm sure it will yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. The big, the big, always go for the bigger number, don't you? Um, and so obviously a lot of that will be funded by uh, player sales, so that the net figure will obviously be um, below, not wanting to get into a debate about net spend. Um, 
but and I think you know th- those two are obviously closely related, right? So I think that one of the key drivers is that there's going to be a lack of or a challenge in selling players to the fees that they want, uh, and therefore uh, the ability to buy will, will go down. So that you tend to get this you know, in the same way we've had exponential growth, you might have a kind of big drop off as well. Yeah. Hey, okay. Well, listen, can, can we talk about the Canadian Premier League? Because uh, 21st Club work with uh, the league in what what appears to me to be a slightly unusual or unique way. Um, would you talk us through how that works? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know how many uh, followers of Canadian football you have listening. Actually, it's um, pretty, I don't pod. know about the, we have got a lot of Canadians. Okay. I know that okay. as, a, as, a, as a part of the dem- demographic, how many of them follow the CPL? Who knows? Who knows? Well, uh, for, for the folks that aren't uh, acquainted with uh, Canadian football, as, I, as what 12 months ago was the case for me. Um, so the Canadian Premier League, um, well, amazingly, Canada didn't have a professional league between the years 1992 and, and 2019, which when you consider you know, the size, wealth of the country, the sporting heritage of the country, and, and the fact that obviously they're hosting a World Cup in 2026 is, is pretty remarkable. Too many bears, um, I think, is the consensus, wasn't it? The the official is not safe I think to play. The line, yeah. You can't I think that you was can't the gather in line. crowds over over fifteen people because of the number of bears. Tell you what, been yeah. to Canada, it's true. There's bears everywhere and it's terrifying. <laughs> a lovely bit of insight there. Um, <laughs> the um, so yeah, they they set up the um, the Canadian Premier League um, in 2019. Had their first season with with seven teams uh, last year, um, and you know by by all accounts and by you know the um, the owners who put money into the league and the players and the pundits, you know, a, a pretty reasonable success as a, as a first year as a league. And um, bear in mind, they don't have access here to the Canadian teams that are in MLS, so Vancouver, Montreal, and, and Toronto. These are brand new, brand new teams. Um, but one of the slightly more disappointing aspects of the first year of the league was um, the quality of the international players. So obviously, international players, um, as we've seen, you know, highlighted in in England with the Premier League, have can have a huge impact on the quality of a league. Um, and you want to be able to get in good international players who not only raise the standard um, in of themselves um, by, by their quality on the pitch, but also help raise the standard of, of the local talent, which, again, I think you could argue has definitely happened in, in England. Uh, and one of the reasons the international pool probably wasn't quite as good as what they'd hoped is that international recruitment's hard, um, and these clubs are brand new. Um, they don't have you know, hugely sophisticated backroom setups to, to go and identify and recruit talent. So they relied a lot on on the coaches who were relatively inexperienced when it came to international recruitment. Uh, and so we're only able to kind of get uh, access to a certain kind of level uh, of players. Um, and so we, we spoke to the Canadian Premier League and they recognised again that the importance of international talent uh, within the league. And they, they also recognised the power that data could um, play in terms of accessing a, a bigger pool of players um, that could be relevant for the league. Um, so as part of the 2020 international recruitment program, and obviously they're hoping to kick off the 2020 season in, in April, obviously that's been delayed and there's still still discussions as to when that's uh, when it's going to restart. Uh, but ahead of this season, um, the CPL tasked us to look at, uh, try and identify players globally who we thought would be capable of, of playing in the Canadian Premier League and, and use the data to filter for talent. Uh, and so that's the way we've been working on a kind of centralised recruitment basis. So the clubs still have the opportunity to recruit their own international talent, uh, but we've essentially been aiding the CPL in recruiting into, into an international pool 
first and foremost using data to identify players. Yeah, it's you know it's really interesting uh, the idea that it's a kind of communal pool. Um, we spoke to um, uh, blanking Alex. I'm blanking on the man's name. Very friendly man, Australian. What? Justin McMahon. Oh, thank you so much. We spoke to Justin McMahon the other day, who is uh, the head of football analysis at Sydney FC, and he was talking about how um, the Australian or the A-League sort of operates in a slightly different way, which appears to be more communal. Incidentally, Alex, someone sent me a message after that saying that uh, they'd like to hear the other side of the story. As an Australian, uh, that they didn't think it was fair. Let's let's chat about that another time. But um, I'm fascinated by the idea of a, of a league which appears to be slightly more equal in that sense. Presumably that was the um, one of the aims of, uh, of the centralised league to, 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 to do that for you guys to provide for them, Omar. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, for leagues that aren't amongst you know, the top leagues in the world, you have to work collaboratively. Um, I think the idea of, you know, the only way the league quality is, is going to improve, or the biggest way to improve league quality, I should say, is, is improve the quality of the worst team. Because if you're improving the quality of the worst team, then A, obviously the, the average standard of the league improves, but also you're creating competitive balance. Uh, you know, if you've got competitive balance, then that encourages teams to try and find competitive edge so that they can continue to improve. Whereas if you've got, as you had a bit last year with, with the CPL, there was quite a big disparity between the best teams and the worst teams. Um, so, you know, trying to create a better ecosystem for all teams is, is massively, uh, is fundamental to improving the quality of leagues. I know that uh, 21st Club are capable of comparing leagues. So as you were saying before, you know, um, a top Slovakian side might be roughly equivalent to Aston Villa, et cetera, et cetera. What level is the Canadian Premier League at and therefore, which leagues are you kind of shopping in? Um, uh, is it is it sort of cast-offs from MLS or is it looking at leagues in, I don't know, Honduras and Nicaragua and wherever else? Yes, uh, it's a great question. Um, so we, the way we evaluate the quality of different leagues is to, to look at their results, obviously both domestically and, and internationally. Uh, unfortunately, with the CPL, they've had a couple of cross-border games some of their teams have been playing cross-border games so firstly they play in the Canadian Championship which gives them the opportunity to play against the Canadian MLS teams and actually the best CPL teams did really well in those games they're playing against slightly weakened um, MLS teams but they did really well uh, and they also play in the CONCACAF continental competition so it allows us to kind of benchmark their their level against uh, Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala and, and so on. Um, and so to give you a kind of sense of the level um, of the CPL, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like League Two, um, well, it's probably closer to National League level uh, in England. So, you know, not, not, not kind of world leading elite football, um, but also, you know, if anyone goes and watches a, a National League game, they'll recognise that there's you know, some pretty high quality footballers at, at that level. Um, and so... You know, one of the challenges you've got at that level is that there are a lot of players and leagues at that level. So if you think of football as this kind of enormous pyramid, at the very top end of the game, there's only there's only a very small handful of players that can play for a Man City or a Bayern Munich um, because there's only so many players of that quality. Uh, and the perverse thing is those clubs have enormous resources in order to scout those players. Whereas if you go down this pyramid, suddenly you're getting a huge pool of players that can play at this level. Um, but actually these clubs have you know, tiny resources to scout these players. Um, and so the areas we were shopping in, I think in the end we got, we got 
players represented from 27 different countries uh, in the international pool, coming from kind of diverse places like Brazil, Costa Rica, Ghana, New Zealand, Sweden, I think Finland as well. Um, and these were looking at players at different levels within these leagues. So I think one of my favourite um, ones was, again, I'm going to butcher another name, but um, a player called Jair Cordova, um, who was playing in the Peruvian second division. And like in most cases, you know, CPL clubs wouldn't kind of go to the Peruvian second division as their first port of call to look for players. And you know, there's not a lot of data at that level. And there's not a lot of, you know, uh, you know, the games themselves actually visually if you if you're watching the video they don't look particularly professional in terms of the pitches and the stadiums and so on uh, but actually Cordova was playing for one of the best teams in the Peruvian second division uh, and we rated even though the Peruvian second division isn't of a particularly high quality the best teams within the Peruvian second division are probably roughly equivalent to the kind of second or third best team in, in the CPL so Cordova I think has scored about 10 goals in 18 games for for his team we rated as being more than capable of playing at CPL level. And he signed actually for the, the CPL's best team, Cavalry, uh, in the winter. Uh, and just chatting to their head coach, Tommy Wilden, you know, he's really excited um, about the prospect of having... Uh, he's, he's, I don't think he's coached too many players from, from kind of uh, international backgrounds before, but he's excited by the prospect of working with a, with a Peruvian player um, within his ranks. And, and I think they're, they're quite excited to see how he gets on when the season starts. Are, are Cavalry from Calvary? Uh, yes, oh. yeah, Calvary, yeah. yeah. Calvary Cavalry, uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Alex, I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, I've, I have two questions. Um, firstly, as you say, the data in some of these leagues is is kind of patchy. Um, so how do you surmount that challenge? Uh, or are in some instances you looking at goals and assists and, and not a lot else? And that leads to the second question. Is the most important single factor a league-by-league comparison? Um, Because once you know that the Peruvian second division is roughly equivalent to this particular level, you can actually then start to look at fairly fundamental metrics rather than going in deep in the same sort of way that you would with a player who is is being recorded by Opta in every single game. Um, Is is that just the main thing that you would need to do? Yeah, so I think... um the big inefficiency to tackle is that when you're watching a game in a particular country it can be sometimes quite hard to gauge that level and you can get biased by things like the quality of the pitch or the quality of the stands or you know the number of supporters in the ground and so through the data being able to establish i think more importantly the level of team rather than the level of league um, because you do see huge variation within leagues so if you take take a Premier League example, Ajax are you know probably top six, top eight Premier League quality team, but you know the worst teams in the Eredivisie and Emmen or whoever are probably close to bottom of League One level, um, and so saying we're scouting the Eredivisie is a bit of a misnomer because there's such a huge variation in quality there and therefore huge variation in quality of players. So the first thing we try and do is establish the quality of those teams. So as I said in the Peruvian second division a top player playing for a, a top team in a Peruvian second division is is capable of playing in the CPL, but maybe not a player towards the bottom end of um, the Peruvian second division. Uh, and then it goes into, when, as you say, you know, you don't have, we don't know how many you know passes per game these players are making or how many duels or whatever. Um, but the, the most fundamental bits are, we know how many minutes they're playing 
And we know that every coach wants to pick his best team every single week if they can, and will therefore pick players who he considers, or he or she hopefully considers the best um, within their within their team. Um, and secondly, you can look at the quality of the team's attack and defence. So if a team has a really good attack, then the odds are they've probably got slightly better attackers, whereas if they've got a really good defence, it's probably down to the coach's organisation and, and their defenders. So you can begin to separate things out like that. And and ultimately, I should you know really important to add is that what we were doing was that we were casting the net really wide. So we got a global perspective on talent, but then we were able to focus in on the regions and teams and players that we thought were roughly the right level. And then it goes um, to the stage of video analysis, you know, background checks, all the other things that would normally go into a, a recruitment process. So we weren't just saying, hey, look at Jay Cordova, sign him. Uh, it was very much Jay <laughs> Cordova is a player that requires or, or um, deserves some consideration within this process. He goes into a pool, the teams look at him and so on, and then select him off the back of that. Right. It would be easier though, wouldn't it, if if it was? Yeah, yeah, well. yeah it'd be a very football manager, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> uh, one final question uh, related to this. Um, presumably, it's much easier to attract players to Canada because it's such a nice place to live. Yes, yes. massively. And, and, and I think that's... You know, one of the things that the the league office did very well was was marketing. Again, you t- we just spoke about player marketing earlier. You know, trying to market um, to players uh, and very uh, relatively easy in Canada to pull together a mood video uh, and and talk about the facilities and talk about the the standard of living and so on. I bet they um, left the Canada. bears off that, didn't they, Omar? Uh, I although you know you know different different videos for different <laughs> kind of. Uh, profiles of people, I suppose, uh, different, um, different nature levels, lovers, and so on. True, um, but true. yeah, the, the they were able, they were able to to market Canada, which you know is um, particularly you know with the World Cup, you know six years away, has increased investment in, in Canadian soccer, uh, and also you know the league is starting to sell players back to Europe. So a couple of players, uh, I think, were sold. One player was sold to Belgium. One player was sold to the Netherlands. I think this winter, um, you know, if 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 you are playing in the Peruvian second division, it can be quite tricky to find a route into Europe. Um, so it, where obviously most of the money is. So going to Canada, going to a league that, you know, has, it seems silly, but like the, the broadcast has great production values. So it just looks good when you're watching it on video. Um, and things like that do make a difference um, in, you know, in the opportunity for players to, to make progressions in their career. No, that's fascinating. Hey, Omar, is there anywhere online that uh, listeners can follow uh, the adventures and the movements of 21st Club or indeed yourself? Yes. Uh, so they can obviously follow us on Twitter at 21st Club, 21ST Club. Uh, go on 21stclub.com and, and register for our, for our insights. We've got a weekly a weekly insights blog and there's a huge back catalogue there um, a number of those blogs uh, feature featuring books that we've written over the last few years so changing the conversations volume one to three which you can uh, which you can per- purchase on amazon uh, and you can follow myself um, at omar chowdhury uh, on twitter as well great hey well omar thanks so much for your time much appreciated thank you very much for having me and uh, also, just to let uh, everyone listening know, Tifo also has an insights blog, but it is uh, mainly about bears. So I don't. It's not that relevant <laughs> to um, to this conversation. Anyway, Alex, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, something else. Au revoir. Au revoir.